Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Truth Perspective. My name is Corey Schink, and joining me in the studio today are Elon Martin. Hi, everyone. And Harrison Keeley. Hello. Today's show, we're going to be tackling a tiny little book that we just recently read. It's called Consciousness, Anatomy of the Soul. It's only about 90 pages long, but don't let the size fool you because it's dense, packed with information that will take you down the rabbit hole into a mathematical world of flatland, hyperspace, toroids, and on to the emergence of consciousness throughout evolution. Now, the book was published in 2009, but we're just getting to it. But it is really quite a gem, and it's really exciting in the territory that it breaks. So in the preface, uh, one of the authors writes, I am a professional anesthesiologist. I know how to put people to sleep and then wake them up again. Having practiced this art for about 30 years, I became frustrated by the knowledge that although I knew how to turn consciousness on and off, I did not really understand what was going on. We knew a lot about consciousness, but not the most important bit. How do groups of neurons produce consciousness? We are immersed in the solution without knowing how we arrived there. It is this process that I have set out to investigate. And from there... Uh, developed a little bit about his background. Uh, the authors, Peter Walling and Kenneth Hicks, I believe both of them are anesthesiologists, but they write that though there are so many millions of anesthesiologists studying how consciousness returns after people go unconscious, there are so few that are turning their attention and investigating the reality of consciousness itself. And so that's exactly what he did, and he set out to investigate the uh, consciousness of all sorts of different life forms on his farm out in Texas. So from there, uh, where do you want to begin? Well, maybe just to give a little background to understand kind of why the things that they come up with this and come up with in this book are so um, just interesting is because they're really tackling some of the main problems of consciousness. So, And who better to do it than an anesthesiologist? Because the point he makes is that, okay, we're trying to understand what it means to be like aware, conscious, awake, kind of, right? And what happens when you anesthetize someone? Well, they kind of lose consciousness. At least that's, the, the, that's what the evidence would seem to suggest. So if, you could, if you're looking for some kind of correlative consciousness in the brain in some way, then... It, it would make sense to compare a brain under anesthet- uh, like when it's anesthetized to a brain that's normally functioning. So what these guys were actually able to do is to um, to to take readings from people's brains as well as like you mentioned all kinds of other species. So basically to show what the brain activity looks like during um, anes- uh, what's the word during anesthesia, and then. Um, how that activity changes as consciousness comes back until the person's awake and aware. And then when you have all of that data, you can look at the differences and the changes that happen over that, uh, that period of time. And then you can compare that data with data from various different species. And the, the reason they do all these different species is to, to make an argument that, um, like frogs, for instance, and fish, and a lot of species are pretty much the same as they were millions of years ago. So you can get an idea by t- testing animals today that are existent today of what that consciousness would have looked, would have, what that um, brain activity would have looked like, you know, millions of years ago. So you can you can test the er- like uh, an example of an organism that is similar to the earliest type of organisms. 
that that we like have examples of living today up to the most evolutionarily recent organisms which are humans and then what they did is they took all this data and they plotted it um and showed basically a progression of consciousness so you have um like i don't have the image in front of me but basically all these different species plotted over time and then they they do their kind of mathematical analyses on these brain waves that they measure and then they actually come up with a, a linear graph so you plot time on the bottom and then um, what they call the dimension attractors we'll get into what that means on like the the y-axis and you get this this curve well you know it's a line that goes from the bottom left up to the upper right and it's a straight line and that in itself is quite remarkable that it shows such a uh, such a clear correlation as if there is something that is increasing over time with the appearance of new species mm -hmm. so it seems to be like a it is very closely linked to time in fact i think they say that it's something like every every four two million or every four million years i or think something. it was 200 million years 200 million years there's like an, another uh, attractor dimension added and again like i said we'll get into that but this gets into some of the problems that we've been tackling in previous shows, like when we were talking about um, Antonio Damasio's book, um, The Strange Order of Things, because this is basically one of the questions that he had. He wanted to know, where, when does consciousness start? And this has been a question that philosophers and psychologists and biologists have been wondering for years, well, for generations, when does consciousness start? Of course, when you look back at guys like Descartes, Descartes was kind of a, he kind of went backwards a little bit in his thinking. He thought that only humans had consciousness and that like all animals, um, maybe even babies, I can't remember if he, if he thought that babies um, were just machines too and that you acquired consciousness at a, at a certain amount of time. If he didn't, then certainly some people did. But Descartes for sure, he thought that animals, for instance, your pet dog or your pet cat, were just um, like biological machines. They didn't have any awareness whatsoever. They were just like robots, essentially. And that's why he could practice vivisection, because he didn't think that animals actually felt any real pain. And so this has been a question that has been plaguing kind of consciousness studies people for years. When does consciousness actually appear in, the, in evolutionary history? And you, you, you've gotten, well, as the years have progressed, they've been going further and further down the evolutionary kind of tree of life. To the point where, like, Damasio thinks that everything with a nervous system has consciousness. And um, we've talked about David Ray Griffin and Alfred North Whitehead and their ideas. So David Ray Griffin, he thinks that, um, he also agrees that not everything has consciousness. But being a panpsychist like Thomas Nagel and like Whitehead, he thinks that everything has some degree of awareness. So this was a, a question we kind of grappled with is like, well, what's the difference between the two? Like, how can something be aware but not conscious? What does consciousness really mean? Well, what um, Walling and Hicks think is that consciousness, they, they kind of define consciousness as this kind of 3D representation of reality. So you're aware of your inner and outer environments, essentially. And that's basically what Damasio said, too, um, that um, with, the, with the development of a nervous system, that gives you the ability to image your environment, basically. So all this data that you're getting from all of these organ systems and all these nerves, all of these receptors, like information receptors attached to your, um, to your nervous system, that you can then, that information forms, forms images, and then you basically can then create a 3D image that helps you um, orient, your, orient yourself in space and like your body in space. So you're aware of what's around you and, the, and your own body, of course, because your body is in space. Now, what um, Walling and Hicks found through their um, analysis of basically the, the mathematics 
well, their conclusion, basically, their hypothesis, kind of both, is that consciousness didn't appear until, what do they say, basically amphibians. Yeah. So like frogs and, and maybe like around, around when fish and frogs appeared. And that anything below that might have, well, they, they'd say it doesn't have, their, their brain waves, their brain activity isn't complex enough to, to say that they, or to suggest that they might have consciousness. Um, again, we'll get into some of the reasons why they think that. So he, these guys actually cut the line off a bit higher than Damasio did. Because Damasio would say everything with a nervous system has some kind of inner representation, inner 3D representation of the world. And these guys are saying, well, you actually have to get to the level of like a frog. So there are some vertebrates below that, but uh, these guys would say they don't, have, um, they don't have what they would consider actual consciousness. So right there, that's, that's an interesting thing. Because one of the things that, one of the questions I grappled with, especially after reading like David Ray Griffin, is that he talks about consciousness and awareness and, and things like that. And, and of course, being a panpsychist, he thinks that everything has some degree of awareness. But then you, you wonder, um, like with, um, like, like for a quadriplegic or something, like there, there are act, activities going on in their body, but they don't have the connections like within their nervous system to get those signals to the brain. So it's like they can't feel, they, they aren't conscious of the experience of like their limbs. And in, in a way, that's kind, of sim that's kind of similar to anesthesia because when you are under anesthesia, you, your body is still experiencing things like presumably, right? You're still, there's still pressure on your body as you're lying in the bed. Um, there's still, you're, you're still breathing, I guess. Um, you know, there's all these processes still going on, but you're just not aware of them. Mm -hmm. So like really the question is, well, wh how would that, where does that apply in the evolutionary, um, history, right? So at what point does, uh, does an animal gain that awareness of themselves, um, or, or their environment or both? And it's really a mystery. Like no one really knows. And what can you say about the beings below that level? Like, what do they experience? Because, like, um, like a panpsychist would argue, they have to experience something on some level. Well, how do we describe that? Well, um, from reading this book, I think maybe the answer is that um, there is some kind of experience going on, but it is like it's like a it's an unconscious experience. So just like we, um, whereas we are conscious there are all kinds of things in our experience that we're not conscious of that are still going on. Mm -hmm. Like, so there's all these body processes going on um, and even things like subliminals, right? Like we, we, subliminals affect us even though we're not aware of them. And there's the, like the, the amount of things, the number of things that affect our consciousness that basically enter our, our minds as information that we're not aware of, like vastly outnumbers the things that we are aware of. Like the, the, the sphere of our actual conscious awareness is very small compared to all the information in total that we're bringing in at any one given time. So like he describes a frog, a frog's consciousness as like froggy consciousness. And it's kind of a pun on like foggy consciousness because the idea being that there's some consciousness there, but it's, it's like compared to a human consciousness, it would be relatively foggy or froggy. So there's some kind of experience there, but it's, uh, it's a bit more um, simple. It's not as complex it's probably a bit like vaguer, a bit foggier. And so perhaps like if you look at an amoeba, um, we discussed like, you know, weeks ago, months ago, we talked about like the, the possible awareness or consciousness of like bacteria and cells. 
Like, what must they experience? Well, there may be a certain type of experience, but it would be very raw, like very primitive, like maybe just the the inkling of um, like and dislike, or like, you know, that feels good, that doesn't feel good. So it's like there's some vague, um, vague feeling or emotion uh, that's either positive or neg- negatively valenced, and that might be it. Whereas with the with a more advanced nervous system, um, with a more complex um, like apparatus for um, synthesis for receiving and synthesizing all this information, then it's like then then you get a better map, basically a better internal representation that becomes like crisper, clearer, and that that's um, that's basically where where we're at. So it's hard to kind of it's hard to kind of um, imagine what it might have been like because we're just used to you know our own consciousness. We don't have the experience of what it's like to be um, you know an earthworm or a frog or you know a chimpanzee. So. Well, there's that. <laughs> well, it's interesting uh, because his perspective as an anesthesiologist, you know, he, he presents all of these uh, dynamics at work when putting a person under. Uh, and, he, and he talks about these various layers or, or kind of faculties for uh, human awareness that get slowly kind of taken out of awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, and he makes this point in order to establish the idea that uh, as human beings, we're we're physically uh, designed isn't quite the word, uh, although we might go there if we wanted to. But um, we're constructed with these kind of primitive uh, or very basic um, nervous systems and and things that kind of operate uh, without our conscious input, and it's on top of those. Mm-hmm. It's it's layered uh, over those things that we have uh, the capacity. Uh, via certain uh, structures in our brain to have greater amounts of awareness. Uh, that, that too reminded me of uh, Tomasio's book um, in, in the sense that um, perhaps it, it was, you know, out of some uh, impetus on the part of human beings in evolution, maybe, that, uh, that, that we grew towards uh, these, these more complex, more... Um, more involved structures of of awareness and consciousness uh, on top of those more kind of uh, very basic, uh, unconscious, primitive uh, Mm -hmm. structures. Uh, So that was very interesting to me. And and he, you know, he really, uh, he looks at that as a a kind of um, basis uh, for which he examines consciousness and and other issues of of human awareness. because what he also asks is not only you know when uh, we might have developed these faculties for awareness and consciousness with all of these various complex disparate parts working together to form a gestalt or a matrix of of awareness of a given thing uh, through all of our different sensory inputs. Um, but he also asks, where is consciousness? Is it mm-hmm. is it the brain? Uh, is it the mind? Is it are the two exactly the same? And his answer is no. Um, you know, th- there there is something intrinsically non-physical uh, to consciousness and awareness that um, that suggests to him that there is something uh, something else involved. Um, so that that was very interesting to me as well. Uh, that there is a um, you know it depends it depends on how you define material. Uh, 
but but the way our senses work together, including um, the, the the percepts of ideas and knowledge, um, suggest another kind of material, uh, or that that our that our beings are, are that ourselves are working to um, attain understanding of. That there isn't only the physical object in and of itself that one becomes aware of through uh, various sensory inputs. But, but that there is a kind of um, a kind of a non-localized, uh, non-physical dynamic to the to the whole uh, way in which we perceive something. Yeah, let me <clears throat> let me read a couple things he says because he these guys put this concept like the most in the, the clearest language that I've written yet or that I've read yet because. It's, a, it's an idea that is so kind of self-evident once you think about it and once it's presented to you that it, it just seems like so obvious. Why, didn't, why haven't more people thought about it in this way? And um, this is something that Whitehead was so, so great at is just pointing out the, the, the really obvious once you hear them assumptions behind like our own thinking and the categories of our own thought. So this is specifically about what you were just saying, Alain, about the you know, if our perceptions aren't physical, then where are they? And if they're not material, then where are they, like, in space? So, um, at one point, they... Um, I wonder if I can find the quote. Um, yeah, they, they mentioned Bertrand Russell. Bertrand Russell. They say that in 1926, Bertrand Russell it reminded his readers, in no uncertain terms, that conscience, consciousness does not exist in physical space, but in non-physical or perceptual space. The visual perception of a horse, for example, may result from looking at a flesh and blood equine, but the percept itself, being a derivative of the percipient's brain function, is obviously not a physical object. Quote, physical and perceptual space have relations, but they are not identical, and failure to grasp the difference between them is a potent source of confusion. Well, people are still confused about that because it's still not like widely acknowledged as just a self-evident fact. A, a few pages later, they write, um, and yet we all experience consciousness. We live in the answer to the problem. It is beginning to seem as though the way that neurons produce consciousness may be completely counterintuitive. The obvious answers have failed to satisfy. The low-hanging fruit has gone. We may have to look in unexpected places, not because the usual answers are not well thought out, but because some of the features of the problem seem to be outside the realm of ordinary three-dimensional space and time. If the percept of the horse which you look at is not a physical object in existing in physical space, it cannot be expected to have a physical location within the three pounds of pulsating neural tissue which reside between your ears. If the percept does not exist in physical space, surely it must exist in non-physical space. It's like, wow, what a concept. Um... And that's, I mean, it's it's totally clear. It makes sense, right? If it's not in physical space, it must be in non-physical space. This is something that you know I've been trying to to say in probably not as clear terms over over the past you know months is that there is such a thing as non-physical space, and so this is where they look and how do they do that? Well, I mentioned these things called attractor dimensions. Was that what I called them? Um, yeah. And so, basically, 
I'm sure that everyone listening has probably seen a readout of an EEG. It's basically just like, you know, a bunch of spikes. Like if if you have if you if you're not sure if you've seen an EEG readout before, think of like the TV shows or movies that you've watched where they've done like a, a lie detector test. So you've got like the, you know, the the moving pin on the paper going back and forth and recording like signals. It might be skin conductance, but the the principle is the same is that when you measure brain activity, you get these ups and downs on that can be plotted on a graph and those are like the the excitations and inhibitions in your in certain brave waves brain waves and certain frequencies and that is a readout of the the electrical activity in your brain and the thing that they do is that um, basically you can analyze any like graph like that using certain mathematical like formulae um, I don't understand the math I'm not a mathematician but when you do that you can find patterns basically so like they give the example of um, like a pendulum. So a pendulum swings back and forth in a clock and it's basically the, the rules of the, the pendulum system are gravity and the spring in the clock that kind of like pushes it back and gives it the force to be able to keep going. And when you plot that on a graph, um, like the velocity of the, the pendulum over time, basically you, you get a, a sine wave. So it goes up like um, it, it, it goes faster a bit and then when it gets to the, the right it stops and then it picks up speed again goes to the left and then it stops and then it's it's so it's this sine wave but when you plot the the like the two factors the two forces um, the two um, the two influences on that system what you get is what's called an attractor and this is a like a visual representation in one dimension of like and it's a circle so basically um, let me see if I can find the way, the way he describes it, without reading the whole chapter. <laughs> so he's, I'll just read a few paragraphs. Hopefully, this will get it across without seeing the pictures, because the pictures really help. Consider consider the pendulum of a clock that is powered by a wound spring. The pendulum controls the release of the stored energy by periodically allowing the escape wheel to rotate, thereby putting the wheels in motion and causing a small movement of the clock's hands. In return, the escape wheel gives the pendulum a nudge with every swing by virtue of its downstream communication with the spring. Dynamics, this is a technical term, dynamics, are the rules by which this system operates. So let's look at the bob on the end of the pendulum. It changes position and it changes velocity. If we plot the po positional change from side to side on the x-axis and the velocity change up and down on the y-axis, we can follow the whole cycle. The dynamics are described by a zero-dimensional point traveling through phase space. So phase space is like a you know a mathematical like representation of all the possible all the possible states of a system. So in this system, the the things the only things that we're measuring the only things that can affect the system are velocity and position. So all the possibilities of velocity and position for this pendulum can be plotted on like a, on a graph, x and y axis. And the form that it takes is a circle. So um, again, really get the book so that you can see the image, but um, the point being that it makes a circle. So as the pendulum moves back and forth, you can plot this by a point going around a circle um, on, this, on this plot, showing the interaction of velocity and position. And so as you're watch, if you're watching them at the same time, if you're watching the pendulum swing back and forth, you'll see um, on this attractor, you'll see the point going around the circle for every full like swing back and forth. And it's just constantly going in a circle. 
and it just repeats over and over because it's a periodic system. The, the system just does the same thing over and over. So he says it's a, a zero-dimensional point traveling through phase space. The point is plotting the instantaneous change of velocity versus position. The trajectory of this zero-dimensional point produces a one-dimensional orbit. Because it's basically just a line going back and looping back on itself. And so it doesn't have even a second dimension because there's nothing in the space between. It's just, uh, it's just one progression through a line in space that, uh, that recurs um, to back towards its starting point. The orbit represents the ongoing solution to the dynamical interaction between gravity pulling the pendulum downwards and the clock spring, which tends to fling the pendulum outwards. So this is basically, by plotting these points on a graph, you get a, a visual representation, uh, a mathematical shape that, that represents the, um, the rules of this system. So for example, with this pendulum, there are only two, um, two rules for the system, and they produce this very simple um, shape, just a circle, and it goes, and it just keeps going. But you can do the same thing with more complex systems, and those give different attractor shapes. So, like, there's a point, um, a point attractor. So this would be like if you imagine like a a, a a kind of spiral that goes in on itself and goes to the middle, and then spirals out, and then it goes to the middle. So this is like a system that's always trying to achieve its original like equilibrium, and then it gets to that point, and then that's that's all it does. It's it, it's just going to one point, it's only got one end point. And then there's the periodic, um, the periodic single um, attractor, which is just the, the circle. That would be, yeah, that's periodic. And then a toroidal one, um, oh sorry, I missed one. The circle is actually the limit cycle, it's linear. And then there's a periodic cycle, which is nonlinear, so that would be like, you've got like a, a spiral on the left side, and then it goes over and it spirals on the, on the right side, and then it goes back. So there's more factors involved, but it's still kind of like, um, you know, still obeying like a pretty um, like set pattern. And then there's a toroidal pattern that's, that stretches out. Now there's another dimension. Um, so it's like, um, it, it's like circles spiraling around in like a donut shape. And then you've got um, chaotic attractors, which are like fractal. And those are in um, probably three dimensions. So basically, just to say that when you're looking at a system that has different, um, different what, what's the word, um, things, different rules determining the, the functioning of this system, different um, dynamics. Maybe. Dynamics. Well, there's an, there's a word I'm searching for that I can't find, but um, conditions maybe, or like so. So you've got. Um, yeah, just different conditions acting on this system. Like, say you've got like seven different conditions, all that are, that are all necessary for this system to work normally. Then that would be a very like complex attractor if you were to to graph the um, the interactions of all these parts. Right, and he writes that like when you bump into that pendulum that you're talking about, then it's going to be disturbed. But mm -hmm. the fact that the uh, that the attractor, that periodic or limit attractor, is still there. <laughs> means that it's going to gradually be attracted back to that position. Right. And I think one of the really important uh, parts of this, because these attractors all have dimensions, and they all, they're all like mathematical entities that exist in what he would call the mathematical space or the mm -hmm. mathematical matrix, which he posits is one of the, uh, is the trellis, I think he calls it, yep. on which evolution evolved and which the universe still functions. Because even be, uh, before Newtonian physics, you know, the Earth still followed this Newtonian orbit. 
and mm-hmm. you know the uh, f- different fractal type uh, patterns that we see in nature are all evidence of this underlying mathematical structure, which is this kind of guiding force that uh, that propels or that that really structures reality. Mm-hmm. And I think another thing that I wanted to mention was uh, the idea of the EEG readout. Um, you know, it's it's a one-dimensional readout, but it's the, a one-dimensional readout of a multi-dimensional thing. Yeah. So I think that's what they're getting at when they're when they're uh, analyzing this is that they're taking this dimension and then they're they're trying to reconstruct it to its original dimension. And as you see it in uh, as you as you see it evolve over time, and with like you know frogs, I think or I think they said that the three-dimensional is when consciousness first occurs. Mm-hmm. Right, the three-dimensional, right. yeah, is but then at that point in time that it occurred, they they got into the details about what they posited was uh, the actual uh, situation, and it was when animals first had to combine the sensory inputs mm-hmm. of like visual sensory inputs to uh, motor outputs, and they needed a mathematical equation in order to do this, mm-hmm. and so they posit that consciousness. He originated in this mathematical space, this completely non-physical mathematical space that underlies, you know, all of existence, and which is really quite fascinating to imagine that consciousness exists or could have uh, come out of that space, given that it is universal and it is such a kind of an eternal object, as we've discussed uh, previously in the show. Mm-hmm. This idea that consciousness and math, uh, mathematics, go hand in hand. Let's back up just a little bit to what you were saying about the EEG readout, and then we'll we'll circle back um, using our linear attractor to to where to where you got to. Um, so, you, like you said, the the EEG readout readout is this zero dimensional plot, um, just a point. And then, so basically, what I was getting at with that introduction was that the way to analyze that is then to you know put it through these like mathematical programs to then find out. Well, what is that one-dimensional readout um, like a representation of? What are the attractors that will produce that readout? So, because there's a pattern there, right? So, just like there's a sine wave that will um, that will show up, what like the linear attractor, just the circle, right? Um, with a more complex zero-dimensional readout, there will be a, a more complex attractor that produces that zero-dimensional readout. So, basically, you have to go into higher dimensions, and so basically what they do is that um, by doing these, by analyzing the EEGs of all these species, they can find out how complex the, the, the factors are that are influencing or that are contributing to that EEG, to the complexity of that EEG. So when you look at a human one, well, if you look at a frog one, for instance, I think frogs were the first that achieved the, the three-dimensional attractor. Um, or when you look at a human multitasking, it goes up to like in the five, uh, like five point something dimensions, like uh, above five dimensions. So basically what that means is that you need, like for, for that, that level of consciousness, you need five different conditions, five factors, five rules um, to, th- that are all determining the specific dynamics of that, um, of that particular um, state of consciousness. So... And that, that's what that linear progression I was talking about over time was, is that, is that like simple organisms had like a zero to one dimensional consciousness. Um, that means their, the system of their consciousness, basically, their EEG readout was so simple that you only needed one or two um, like conditions in order to explain the whole, um, like all the complexity of that, um, uh, that electrical activity 
in that organism. And then when you get to up to frogs, it's actually complex enough to for, that you need three dimensions in order to to understand it and and presumably in order to experience that level of consciousness. And then um, and then with higher dimensions, well, with higher levels of consciousness too, like with humans, five we need we need five dimensions um, to describe the the complexity of the the actual brain activity that that we're you know putting out at any given time while multitasking multitasking then you mentioned that thing about um like the need for to to coordinate and synthesize all this information as being like so when we look at the three-dimensional cutoff point he gives the example of the lobster um the noble lobster and this was an interesting thing too is that when you he's got a little diagram so again get the book so you can see the pictures there's the diagram. Basically, imagine a, a lobster like looking out into space. It sees its food. Now, how is it going to get that food? If it's really simple, then and it's it's only got it can only think one thing at the same time. Basically, it sees the food, and there's only like the, the food exists in relation to its eye. So it is let's say thirty degrees away from the eye. Well, if you can only think one thing at this at at, at a time. You're never going to be able to get the food into your mouth because you're never going to be able to grab it. You're never going to be able to get to it because because you have to introduce a new um, a new dimension, essentially an- another uh, another condition, another factor into your thinking, into your perception, in order to say, okay, well, or well, this is all unconscious. Remember to see that food, and then okay, that's thirty degrees away. Now my claw, you know, my uh, what are they called? My uh, pincer. My pincer is like however many degrees away from my eye, and so there has to be an inner calculation that goes on to to say to adjust for that basically and say okay it's thirty degrees away from my frame of reference, but my pincer is this far away from my frame of reference, so therefore it is that far away from the food, and then um, there are like two joints basically between the pincer and like the the, the equivalent of the shoulder, so basically there's a complex mathematical um, um, calculation that has to go on in order to grab that food and put it into my mouth if I'm a lobster. And uh, <laughs> that just reminds me, uh, like uh, uh, an intuitive representation of this that you can find on Facebook or YouTube is those pictures or those memes of cats like, you know, calculating in their mind the, the jump that they're going to make and you see all the math equations going by on the screen as they're calculating and then, you know, they miss their target and it's funny. But that's essentially... Um, it's funny because it's actually true. There are all kinds of these like unconscious calculations going on. Like no one, no one who throws a baseball actually does the like the physical calculations in their mind in order to figure out how hard to throw it and you know what direction to throw it. It's this intuitive process, right? Anyone who's ever thrown something knows that. It's just something that you gain by practice and that you just feel. You just feel the the equations. The equations or like the calculations are going on somewhere. Certainly not consciously, and what they're basically saying is that at that point in time in evolutionary history, there needed to be something that did those calculations, and they needed to be done somewhere. And where are they done? Well, again, where is math done? It's done in non-physical space. It's done in mathematical space. So there are several um, kind of implications of this. Like you mentioned, one that that uh, they suggest that. Um, through going all through by going through all of this, that that is where consciousness actually is, because um, that's where the calculations are being done. That's where all of this stuff is being processed and um, and well, essentially calculated. 
So the math is basically pre-existent. Like like you said, when I, when you when you disrupt the system, like the pendulum system, it will it will like waver a bit, but it will find its equilibrium again, and it will. So it's that's why it's called an attractor, is because the system wants to be. It is attracted to that state, and it will it will naturally um, like force itself back into resonance with that um, with that with those dynamics. And so there's something. What, what does that suggest? It's well, um, their suggestion and the suggestion that we've made, based on again Whitehead and, and David Ray Griffin, is that these mathematical objects, these eternal objects, are actually like preexistent. Like they they actually exist at some level of reality that is more fundamental than the physical world, and that um, phys- that physical reality is attracted to these mathematical rules essentially and that's why things stay in their orbits that's why there's gravity that's why we can that's why there's physics because we can mathematically describe the dynamics of systems we can describe the the mathematical ways in which they interact the rules by which they interact and the rules by, by just by which they exist and uh, and change and they are like laws essentially that's why we call them laws because because they, they seem like these unchanging rules now they may change like we've said in the past too like with uh, what rupert sheldrake suggests is that they may be consistent and universal but they're not necessarily set in stone like they um, laws may evolve over time but that's kind of beside the point the point is that the the math is um, the math is primary in this sense so just like the pendulum will be attracted back to that specific attractor there are um, consciousness attractors like basically rules by which our consciousness operates and we're not really we're not aware of them like we're only aware of the three-dimensional space in which we exist but our consciousness is actually acting um especially like when we're multi multitasking at a higher dimensional level like it's operating in like five dimensions and um well yeah well, it's interesting because the, the title of the book, again, is Consciousness, Anatomy of the Soul. And, um, you know, he starts out his book by saying, you know, as an anesthesiologist, he's aware of uh, stories, or just as a, a person who's just curious and interested, of, of people who have experienced, you know, the, the near-death experience of a tunnel um, <clears throat> or, uh, or astral projection. And he makes the, the point very early on in the book that uh, he's not going to really look at those things. Um, but I think he mentions them as just kind of place marks or suggestions that the, you know these would be the reasons why he's coming at the question of consciousness in as uh, scientific a way as, as he possibly can. Um, and uh, I think one of the great metaphors of the book is his, uh, is his description of um, a novella that is called Flatland. And uh, he has some interesting observations about that, that that kind of go to explain, you know, w- why he's going about explaining uh, the, the problem or, or the, uh, the existence of consciousness in the way that he is. Uh, th- I'm just going to read a bit from it. He says, Flatland is the 2D world created by Edwin A. Abbott in the 19th century. The main character in this novella is a square. He lives in a 2D world which is as flat as a piece of paper. The inhabitants are free to move about on or in the surface, but without the power to rise above or to sink below it. A house is a polygon, 
one line of which hinges open and shut like a door. We feel the limitations of living in Flatland while knowing that there really is a 3D world. It is easy for us to extrapolate from 2D to our 3D world by analogy. This allegory helps us to accept higher dimensions after our descent into an imaginary lower dimensional world. A flatlander cannot see a 3D object, just like the line, just like the line-like edges of the other flatlanders. In this story, a sphere from Spaceland approaches Flatland with the intention of convincing the square that a higher dimension exists. What happens when the sphere approaches Flatland and passes right through it? An observer Flatlander sees a spot appear, then a circle getting bigger and bigger, till the equator of the sphere intersects Flatland. Then he sees the circle getting smaller and smaller till it disappears. As the sphere passes through this 2D world, Mr. Square can only see a circle getting bigger, then smaller. When sphere passes through Flatland, Square only sees a spot getting bigger, then smaller, like a series of circular disks. So again, an, another reason to get the book so you can uh, visualize this, this process or interaction between the sphere and the flat square. A flatlander cannot see the sphere, but it is possible for him to con construct the sphere in his perceptual space. But is it? So that's a question. If the flatlander is able to see the sphere, we might get a clue as to how our brain works in greater than 3D. Suppose the flatlander can retain the image of each disk for a little while. And suppose he is able to quote-unquote stack these images in his conscious moment. As the stacked disks accumulate in his perceptual space, the sphere will gradually take shape, and he will have overcome the prior restrictions of his 2D physical world and, and will be able to see, quote-unquote, the higher dimensional object in his mind's eye. In this way, Square's mind can function in a higher dimension than 2D, in a 2D world, which in his body is trapped. He is able to function above his quote-unquote pay grade. The human brain exhibits synchronous activity with quote phase transitions occurring in time with gamma activity. These may be the cinema, cin cinematographic slices of data which are then laminated, like the holy spoon, to form a multidimensional conscious moment. Honey spoon? Honey spoon, yeah. thank you. Yeah. A and holy that, spoon. A holy spoon. That's, that's, <laughs> that's what my brain that's more turned fitting. into. Yes. And finally, he says, we know that the dimensions of brain dynamics during anesthesia are between about 1.5D to 2.5D. We know that 2D dynamics are unable to represent anything as complicated as consciousness, from the Poincare-Brendixen theorem, which is one of the central results of nonlinear dynamical theory. Let me just interrupt you for a sec yeah. to, to show how that um, relates back to something we said earlier. So the reason that, they're, that they are able to hypothesize that creatures below the level of like frogs, amphibians, don't have consciousness is because they're, um, when you analyze their EEGs, you only get, like you said, um, a, a a dimension attractor or attractor dimension that's between one and two dimensions between one and two and when you and that state the the, the equivalent of that state in humans is um, a human that is unconscious that is under like an uh, anesthesia so um, 
so basically they're they're going by analogy well if 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 a human um if the only time that a human eeg equals one one to two dimensions is when they're unconscious then uh, another animal with the same eeg wouldn't be conscious because they're saying that basically there's no way to be conscious that we know of like as a human when your brain activity is only describable in one to two dimensions so if an animal's brain activity is only describable in one to two dimensions, then they shouldn't be conscious. So that's how they reach that conclusion. I just wanted to point that out to, 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 to just to show that they're not just kind of guessing that um, you know anything below three wouldn't be conscious because the only data that we have, which is you know admittedly you know from ourselves, is that it's just not possible. It, it doesn't work. You can't have we we haven't or they haven't in, in, encountered a human that is consciousness that is conscious that shows brain activity um, that is that simple, basically, that, that lacks complexity to, to, to that degree. Well, just, uh, just to say, you know, in, in, in reading that, um, what called to mind, and I think he says this later in the chapter, you know, th this analogy of the, the flatlander perceiving the square as a, um, through imaginal space, through, uh, through the precepts of, of thinking um, and perception, uh, as a as a series of slices that form the sphere that allow him to perceive um, through his critical faculties a sphere when when normally he, he can't perceive a sphere. Uh, it's just a great metaphor for the book as a kind of um, you know you're getting all of these various slices um, mm -hmm. that we're that we're getting on the idea that as three D beings you know kicking this up a notch. Um, that we can, at least in theory, perceive not only consciousness, uh, but but what you know, a higher dimensional reality um, may, at least on a very basic level, at least the very idea that it it exists, or that it that that um, that we can take pieces of of information and and at least attempt to map some kind of um, uh, hypothesis that that if uh if a if a 2 d -er can possibly perceive a, a 3 d uh, dimension maybe it's possible for us to understand uh the the possibility that there is more beyond our 3 d awareness well i think the the kind of immediate question that they are answering like um with that section is that when you have like a that hypothetical 2 d creature who is conceiving of a three-dimensional reality. Like they point out, it can't actually perceive the 3D shape, like it can't perceive the sphere, mm -hmm. but it can hold in mind the slices of the sphere to get a, like a, a, an approximation of the sphere. It would look more like the honey, the, the honey spoon, basically. Like a, and if you haven't seen a honey spoon, it's like um, a bunch of disks um, of increasing size that you know get a bit bigger and then a bit smaller. And... Um, so the, the the correlation they're making to the brain activity is that um, if brain activity, if consciousness is operating at this higher dimensional level, um, how does that how basically how do we bring that down to to our third dimensional level? How is the brain able to translate that higher dimensional information into its three dimensional form? <clears throat> Excuse me. And what they, um, the idea that they come up with, 
is that, like they mentioned, there are these phase transitions that are measurable in brain activity. And again, not being a mathematician, I, I probably won't des won't describe this, um, you know, very accurately. But as far as I, I, I well, I'll try. So ba basically, like when you have these um, this progression of attractors from like point to linear to periodic um, to toroidal to to chaotic, um, that can be a representation of uh, like a phase transition. Basically, you look at a signal and then it'll get like unstable, and then it'll it'll just jump to a, a new level of complexity that's not the same as the one before it, and you can't determine the the phase change just by the dynamics of the initial. Um, the initial attractor, the initial dynamics of the system. So there's something like new that gets introduced into the system to, to jump it to a new level. So you can observe this, this activity in the brain. And so, so they're wondering, well, w what might the relation be? So their hypothesis is that, that these phase transitions are like, are like the slices. So one phase, like one phase transition will be one slice. The next phase trans transition will be the next slice of a higher dimensional object, like a higher dimensional, um, you know, construct or, or conscious something. Like who even knows really how to describe it? And then what what the so the way that the brain is actually able to to bring that higher dimensional operation down into our level is basically through memory. So, because what they basically say is that um, the brain will keep these streams, these slices in mind to to reconstruct that higher dimensional structure, and um, so this can so this basically means that consciousness can't exist at an instant. It has to be this kind of recursive, like self looping process where you have one slice and then another slice, and then as the, that second slice comes, you have to keep the first slice in mind, and then as the third one comes, you have to keep the previous two in mind, and so it's this looping structure, and it's only after a, a little period of time where you have all of these different slices that you've got the object, you've got the full object, because it can only translate itself into our like three-dimensional realm through, this, through these, this series of slices over time. Um, that's, so you need memory. Like We wouldn't be able to have consciousness without memory. And they basically uh, they, they've calculated this because it's it's based on known processes. So like um, so this is based on like the time it'll take for different signals to to, to 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 get transmitted like throughout your body and your nervous system and your brain. So they basically say that there's a window of 10 to 30 frames at at 40 hertz into which this data has to be fit. Um, and so it's like a it's kind of like a rolling average. Um, if you've ever looked at a graph of data where it's like, let's say you've got, um, you're, you're measuring like a crime rate or something. So you've got the years 1970 to 1975, and you take the average, and then that will give you one plot on your bar graph. And then you take 1971 to 1976, and that'll give you another average. And so you're, you're using some of the same data in each um, plot on your graph, and so they call it a rolling average. So the average changes within these within and over these kind of five-year chunks. So it's the same thing with consciousness and, and the brain activity, is that we're getting these slices, and it's kind of a rolling average, well, not necessarily an average, but it's a rolling, um, uh, a rolling um, combination or synthesis of all of these slices over time, and it's, it's constantly looping back on itself as it progresses forward, or as it progresses through time. <clears throat> so one of the things that they write is that the... <clears throat> The slow neural transmission rates 
are compensated by a slow fade of information during the conscious moment. So what they actually mean by that is that they point out that consciousness, like um, in in its physical representation, like a, a, as brain activity, is actually very slow. If you compare it with the speed of light, it's like a you know it's like a turtle. It's a very slow process. But the advantage of that, like that slowness, the slowness that it takes, like the the light from an, the light reflected reflected from an object that you see, like to enter your your um, your your eye and through your visual um, like through the nerves into your visual cortex, the time that that takes, it's actually quite slow compared to you know like like the speed of light. Um, but the time that it, that takes allows the the necessary time for these phase transitions to take place that, that that we can then construct the the image based on these um, like construct the uh, construct the picture based on taking all these slices of the higher dimensional calculations that are going on and bringing them back down to earth to three dimensions to then be conscious of them yeah i think it's really fascinating how they 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 bring this uh, this section up because to solve uh, what they called the the unified or the the binding problem mm-hmm. which was the the problem that you so like you said you have this light coming into your eyes let's say you're looking at your dog the light's reflecting off the dog and you're getting this visual information and then you're touching the dog you're getting this sensory information then you have emotional memories and mm-hmm. all of these things you can smell the dog and now, you know, how does all of that become unified and binded together into one coherent uh, conscious experience? Mm-hmm. And they talk about the stacking of, you know, the all of this bioelectric kind of mathematical storm that's going on if you were to, you know, connect it to an EEG. And you see that all of that is, it seems from what they described, that it was basically, it was digitized and then it was rendered into a, a conscious experience through that process mm-hmm. all the information was entered into this stream you know or a storm rather and then became a conscious experience at a higher dimension yeah. than it was that you know than it was originally you know inputted on it was, right yeah yeah but because like i said earlier um without the without the ability to operate in these higher dimensions to put all this stuff together we'd only be able to think one thing at a time and if you can only think one thing at a time we wouldn't really be able to we wouldn't really be able to think anything because we wouldn't be able to put anything together. Mm-hmm. So just th- this, this, w- this won't work exactly, but it would be kind of be like seeing the dog, but you can't feel it or smell it or remember it or you know remember your emotional experiences of it, or you can only feel your emotional memories of it, and, and or you can only smell it or you can only feel it. Like there has to be a way to integrate all of these different. Um, different perceptions together to form the one thing that we think of when we then when we see our dog or that we experience when we see our dog the dog you know our dog there are all these different streams of information that have to go together in order to just have the the concept or the experience of your dog or of anything and um, so that that's kind of a, a way of of um, a way into describing how all of these things fit together like so you have these attractors um that are vis- like like higher dimensional visual like mathematical representations of uh, dynamical systems with um with various um what would be a way to put it um of various input variables basically so like um the, those different dynamics the like the rules 
governing that dynamical system are the different input variables. So like th those what might be, like you said, your emotional memories, the, the tactile sensations, the visu visual perceptions, the smells, etc. All those different streams of information have to go together and that those are the rules acting on the dynamical system. That are then you know rep that can be represented in like that higher dimensional shape that then get translated back into 3D through this recursive looping, you know self um, self looping memory system that integrates all you know each slice is one bit of that that picture that then gets put together to create this conscious percept, and um, so the more the more information streams you have the more variables. Um, then the the higher dimension the, the the higher dimension the attractor will be that describes that yeah, the system. more chaotic right and the less right. predictable yeah. right so what does he say about chaos exactly that that the ability to perceive all of these things in their various slices could not exist without a the element of chaos and that um it it's our it's this kind of non-physical non-local uh perception of all of these things through memory through conscious awareness that um, because you can't you can't necessarily predict you can't put these parameters directly onto mm -hmm. the perception of something there has to be uh, some kind of uh, chaotic well, right. element he, he to writes, it that's nonlinear yeah I think he what I remember he said about chaos is that uh, that basically as systems are energized then they they transform from the lower like one-dimensional you know limit cycle, attractor and then on uh, he he writes they go from the limit cycle to the periodic to the toroidal to the chaotic and you see examples of each of these in nature you know like we talked about the pendulum and then the periodic would be like a bouncing ball and then the toroidal was like i think cell division was used as an example um that i read it was he didn't use that example in the book and then the chaotic which would be like this the fractals and I mean, you can look up some of these chaotic strange attractors and look at the you know the entities that they've as they've been graphed by physicists and mathematicians and it's you know they're they're stunning how beautiful they are how strange you know there's a reason they're called strange attractors but uh basically yeah that just the, the more energy that you put into the system um which you know I don't, i'm not sure he never specifies what kind of energy is being is going well, no, in well, no he does though does that's he? the that's the gamma oh that's right the right? gamma frequencies yeah. right yep because the, the there seems to be a particular feature of human brain activity that there's this constant like background gamma activity and he they hypothesize that this background activity it's basically it's creating a state of readiness or a state of potential for the brain so it'll it makes it um um more sensitive basically so as a so it, it takes less input to affect the system so it's like you're you're um well it's being in a state of readiness right as opposed to like lazy being lazy on the couch like if you're alert and ready then you know if someone if one of your friends wants to play a trick in, on you and you know throw something at you you're ready to catch it as opposed to just being so lazy that it hits you in the face like so your brain is ready to go into action um and make all of these um these changes or or whatever but basically well so basically that they just hypothesize that this this state this brain state this gamma activity is basically the the readiness potential of the brain that will then allow it to do other things i guess or just be conscious maybe um but to get into to get back to what you were asking about um ilan about the chaos 
one of the things they point out, um, like I wouldn't, I, I don't know for sure. Like I'm just, uh, like I just don't know if if they're saying what you said in the way that you phrased it about chaos kind of being necessary. Uh, I can't remember. Uh, that, that's basically yeah. what I was but saying. But I, th- I think I'm, I, I get where you're going with that. Um, I think they're, I think for sure they're getting at something similar. So, for example, when they're talking about um, EEGs and consciousness uh, attractors, like from the one to two D level, they basically say that one to two D systems have very limited dynamical possibilities. So basically, they have fixed trajectories, and that would be like the equivalent of well, like you like the examples Corey gave, um, like the pendulum or a bouncing ball. It's like there's not a lot of options for those systems. They can either swing back and forth or bounce up and down or not, essentially, right? And that's it. So, um, so there's not a lot of choice. And an example in the biological world might be like at a two a two D ish level. Is it's basically just like a stimulus response machine, kind of like like what Descartes might have hypothesized. Not strictly um, stimulus response, but that's those are the options available for certain creatures. So certain creatures are so simple that they basically only have the choice of like you know go towards or get away from, or you know eat or don't eat. Like these very simple um, binary choices. There's not a lot of room for maneuver. Not a lot of like equality of opportunity for the, these lower these lower level creatures but at the 3d level and higher um, they write that the trajectories can wander around forever without settling down to a, a fixed point or a closed orbit so basically that's why you need three three dimensions to describe these attractors is because they're like just imagine a point in space just like going all over the place and rotating and moving um, and imagine it doing so where it never does the same thing twice it never like crosses its original orbit it's so that's basically um i think that would be yeah that would be like the the chaotic strange attractor where it creates this just really complex weird shape that never like repeats itself it's not periodic like the periodic attractor it's not um it's not like a a point attractor where it's always doing the same thing it's very complex you can't like you can look at any part of it and not get a representation of like the full thing um because it doesn't repeat and it never like intersects on itself. So he described, or they describe that the um, the strange attractor, it's um, it's aperiodic, so it never repeats itself, and and it's sensitive to tiny changes. Um, and when that happens, they say chaos looms. Mm-hmm. And basically, what that means is that it opens up unlimited possibilities. So when you have like even a frog has um, as simple as a frog is. It's got like, it's got, let me think if it would have unlimited possibilities. Well, it's got a lot of possibilities for sure. Like not as many as humans, but like it can jump all over the place. Right. <laughs> like it can do a lot of things. It's not strictly like, it's, it's not as simple as just an amoeba, you know, moving towards something and moving away from it and like ingesting food and like expelling it. Like there's a lot more complexity to it. But um, when you, when you look at, when you think about it in these terms, the the thing that I they don't mention that they don't mention this, but the thing that I thought of was essentially basically free will, and specifically from the the perspective of um, like the way that David Ray Griffin, for instance, talks about it, is that the like free will is basically um, the number of options available to you, the number of possibilities you have. Um, so something with more possibilities than another thing has greater free will. Mm-hmm. Like the more possibilities you have, the 
the greater is your freedom to choose. Um, like if you only have one or two choices, like one or the other, that's not a lot of freedom. But if you've got like a million choices or infinite choices, that's a lot of freedom. And so the the idea being that like the that human consciousness is at a level, at a degree of complexity where there are um, like exponentially more possibilities open to a human consciousness than there are to a frog's consciousness or whatever it is that something below the level of a frog has, is that there are more possibilities for, for choice, for action. And that, um, and one of the implications of these, like the, just the shapes of these attractors would be, is that, like I said, that you have the possibility at least of never doing the same thing twice or of, um, of you know, something new happening. Of course, that doesn't mean that's going to be the case, um, doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be good either. <laughs> right, right. So, so like in terms of um, like leaving the mathematical like explanations and getting down to just practical life, um, just think about it like this: like, are you, you can be like a simple attractor? You can be operating on the principles of a simple attractor by just doing the same thing in your life every day and never doing, never learning anything new, never doing anything new, never trying anything new. Mm-hmm. And you see, like everyone knows people like that who are just they they just stay the same. And they just do the same thing over and over. There's nothing. There's nothing new that ever gets introduced in their life. And, it, and if if it does get introduced, it's by accident. It's from the external world. It's a. Uh, it's like spontaneous from their perspective. Like um, you know, they're hit by tragedy, or you know, they're walking down the street and they get in an accident. Whatever. Like that's not something that that they actually brought into their own lives necessarily. Like from the through their own conscious choice. Mm-hmm. From their perspective, they're just you know in that maybe like. Uh, periodic attractor just going back and forth between their two routines or something like that but um, but for so, for for someone that's um, let's say like well you can compare that person to someone who is constantly searching constantly exposing themselves to new experiences constantly trying to better themselves um, by breaking out of those old dynamical systems and trying to trying to gain more freedom, trying to use that freedom, and then seeing what comes like with that freedom. Like I said, that's not always necessarily a, a pleasant thing, but, right? Uh, but it's also it's implied that it's a, necess- a necessity if you look at their evolutionary chart. That it, the, uh, the over evolutionary time, the dimension attractors only increase. And so as you go along, you, you know, as a human being, you don't want to go back to right. frog, froggy brain. <laughs> to you frog that's brain. not, you know, that's, that's obviously a choice that you can make since we do live in a, in a universe of free will. But the, the way forward is, the, is through that, that chaotic, those chaotic attractors um, that, you know, I mean, if, you know, if, even if it is another 200 million years from now, mm-hmm. you know, at least you're contributing to some, to Well, I was thinking that, that this very book is a kind of an attractor. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, consciousness, anatomy of the soul, that's the big hook, right? You know, uh, that, that we can somehow um, affirm uh, the existence of a soul through consciousness and, and all of its uh, workings. Um, and that maybe that is the next level. That 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 in trying to break out of those uh, those NPC dynamics that you were describing a moment ago, Harrison, that that uh, you know, acknowledging and and uh, processing the possibility that consciousness uh, suggests uh, the existence of a soul within us um, is that place that we have the 
a, an impetus towards moving towards and to understanding and to uh, considering and thinking about and becoming um, becoming closer to in some way. And um, that's pretty much how we, uh, well, that, that's, that's how I kind of take it. Um, what, uh, what Walling does towards the end of the book is uh, he kind of brings it all together um, in some ways and um, does a brief review of, you know, what, what religion and philosophers and, uh, and scientists have all kind of done to uh, acknowledge the existence of uh, a soul. Um, and it, it's a kind of a point of departure uh, that, that we can leave the book with. Um, because he's saying, you know, he, he's the, he's the, the scientist in this case. Um, and if it's not exactly the soul that he's describing, then, it, then at least it's a kind of an expanded understanding of what consciousness is, uh, in all of its complexity and, and the fact that it, there's more than just these kind of 2d, you know, stimulus response things at work, there's much more involved. So what do you guys think? Do you think that he, that he established the, uh, cause it's a leap, you know, it, things have consciousness, it, uh, People are people have complex levels of awareness and, and and layers of things that kind of congeal to form a a perception of something bigger. Um, but does that does that suggest the existence of a soul exactly? Well, I think that you know what their their point the point of the book was to was to kind of point the way forward for future researchers for people who were, would be interested and intrigued. By the possibility of empirically discovering these higher dimensions, mm-hmm. and so I think in that case they did it. I think yeah, they they broke new ground for sure. But I'm not a mathematician, so I can't <laughs> say for sure whether you know. I'm sure the mathematicians out there that's who they wrote the book for, the people who are able to go and do these computations. But I think that you know they obviously established the importance of mathematics in just the universe in general mm-hmm. as as the objects that structure the backbone, really, of the universe. And by providing a mathematical explanation or mathema- uh, uh, you know, a way to, you know, to ch- kind of chart out the mathematical realities of, this, of the consciousness or the soul, then they have done a huge service, I think, to, to humanity to, to, and to just the mind, you know. Yes. Because that's, that's so big in terms of, you know, people these days needing proof. You know, and you know, you can't just. I don't think we could turn back time and say, now everybody, you have to work. It's time to go back to the the one old time religion. You know, the old living God. You know, you all have to worship. I think that in order to you know move forward, really, humanity needs a a real empirical um, understanding of this higher dimensions that's based in science, that's based in the traditions of science and mathematics. And that can be, you know, proven or disproven. Now, and now I don't, you know, it was published in 2009. Who knows if it would make a real huge impact in, you know, the universities these days since there's crumbling all around. But um, I think that, you know, the, the world is a better place for the work that they've done. Well, I think that, um, I think one of, the, one of the hidden assumptions behind the book is well, naturally, a philosophical one. Like, the whole book hinges on this idea of mathematical realism. So I think that one of the points of attack for materialists would be that 
like math isn't uh, like math isn't real essentially because that is an argument um, among philosophers essentially that math that mathematics is a human creation that um, like I think it's a nonsensical one but it is a it is very popular in um, you know in various schools of thought that that what we think of when we think of the, what we think of as mathematics is really just like our um, sense making of the way of the world and, and the, the way things work and that mathematics doesn't have any um, like extrinsic external reality um, whatsoever that's why um, you know the, that's why we talked about it in previous shows and I think why Whitehead's philosophy is so important is because that really doesn't make sense like you won't be able to convince these people that that it that the opposite is true but the opposite is the only thing that makes sense so like these guys say, these guys are kind of just, they've got enough common sense that it just seems obvious to them. They think that, oh, well, if this system operates on these mathematical principles, uh, like uh, on these rules, if this, if this dynamical system operates on, according to these rules, those dynamics must be like the trellis. They must be the, the non-physical template um, to, in, in which these things operate and grow or move or whatever. So there, there is a place for mathematical realism for these actual existing mathematical objects um so people who don't want to believe will just reject that outright they say oh there's no like mathematical objects don't really exist well really they must um and they do but you won't be able to convince anyone of that so but as for the question of the soul like i think what they basically you know i I don't know if i'd say that they definitely I have a slam dunk case, but it is very interesting and suggestive. Like, you know, not like Corey, like not being a mathematician, I can't totally um, for sure, you know, even understand a lot of the things that they say because I don't know the, you know, the math that they use to um, analyze these EEGs, right? Um, I got to kind of take their word for it that, that, that it describes what they're saying it describes. But from what I can follow in their argument, it, it does, and, and based on my own like philosophical presuppositions, um, it makes sense mm-hmm. that the the idea that like if something, if some process can only be described using um, higher dimensions in mathematical space, so this is like an abstract realm of mathematics, right? Um, it's not necessarily like a, like a physical higher dimension. It is a mathematical representation of a higher dimension. And if you need those dimensions in order to describe a physical process, then those mathematical dimensions must exist in some form. And I'd say that they they must ex- they must exist abstractly at the very least, like non-physically. So there is something that we know of as a mathematical space in which these things are true and in, in which they operate. Now we might we might have access to this to some degree in the sense. Uh, that mathematicians do when they do this, these mathematics and understand them. Um, but, you know, anything more than that is kind of harder to speculate about. Um, but it is very suggestive that, that that consciousness seems to operate only according to the rules of a higher dimensional system. It seems to only operate in mathematical higher hyperdimensional space. So that is that is very interesting. And if you know, if mathematical objects are pre-existent, if they are the the things in which math or in which physical things move and grow and live, then 
um, you know, that seems like a pretty, you know, that seems like a dead ringer for the description of like a soul. It seems like a, a more precise, um, a more precise description of what the word soul is attempting to describe. It is this source of consciousness, this more, this complex thing, which, um, which acts as an attractor on our consciousness, which, which pulls us towards certain things and like, uh, gives shape to, to not only our thoughts, but then, you know, our actions and our lives. And that, seems to be going in the direction of, you know, something very religious or very spiritual, even though it's basically this kind of abstract mathematical, we get there through this abstract mathematical, you know, calculation. Um, So, yeah, that's what I'd say about that. Right. It it gives this uh, this, uh, vision of God the Father, this divine mind that that oversees all creation and guides it along its way. Mm -hmm. It's really, it's it's a really interesting, but like you said, there's, they have these uh, philosoph- uh, philosophical presuppositions, right? But it's almost refreshing that they have the ones that they do, mm-hmm. because I'm so it's so refreshing to see science done by people who have this open mind, such yeah. a such an open mind to um, to exploring questions in such an innovative way, taking EEGs of frogs yeah. and fish and humans and. It's you know it's not like it's being funded by you know King's College or something. It's just it's um it's just one man and doing science in a quest to understand the unknown, and then offering or two men I'm sorry and then offering the the knowledge to other people to either prove or you know disprove. Mm-hmm. And he's not afraid at the end of the book to to kind of quote from philosophers in the Bible in in their affirmation of um, you know. The soul as a non-physical, non-temporal, uh, non-spatial uh, thing that exists uh, on on its own, as it were. Um, and then, you know, like you were saying, Harrison, he, um, you know, he really uh, he is kind of addressing directly this uh, the materialist point of view, where you know the brain is the mind, the brain is the soul, and and that's it. And he he pretty much says it uh, flatly, plainly. Uh, you know, we we beg to disagree. This is this is something that uh, that exists outside of you know consciousness and and what we can infer from consciousness um, and and the way that uh, awareness works uh, does fall outside of time and space in many ways. So you know why not uh, take this as a uh, like I was saying before a point of departure for for thinking about how uh, a soul. Uh, may be said to have to exist in in some form or fashion. Mm-hmm. Right. He he says that uh, consciousness, we believe, is only part of the soul. Well, I want to I want to just restate kind of two of the concepts, and then get into just a couple um, possible implications in like our last uh, ten or eleven minutes of the show today. First, a quote, um, just to kind of summarize where they're coming from. Dynamical processes unfold in a strange non-physical space and consciousness is so closely linked to to dynamical brain changes that we believe that this is the kind of space in which consciousness must reside that's kind of just a summary of their their main argument now getting back to one of the points that we made about like the the binding pro the binding process that that you mentioned Corey. basically you have these different streams of information these different inputs that all need to be integrated so, um, so something needs to be happening to integrate, synthesize, basically bind all of these 
input streams to act as one system. And um, basic, and well, basically what they're arguing is that you need phase space, you need higher dimensional space, higher mathematical abstract space in order to coordinate all these systems. That's what the example they gave about the lobster and uh, basically to coordinate visual and motor systems. So you need a higher dimensional abstract mathematical space in order to coordinate just your visual and motor systems, just in order to, to you know, grab your beer or your, you know, zero-carb soda. Um, that's, it, it's kind of a requirement. So that, that's why I think they kind of make a good case. It, like it, their, their logic kind of makes sense, according to me, according to my little brain. And um, one other point is that so you've got all of these different body, well, this is kind of the same point. You've got all these different body systems and neural systems. They're all kind of doing their own thing. And it is basically these higher dimensional attractors that are the things that unify them, that give them all, um, all unity and, and allow them to all operate in the same system, essentially. So basically, it's what makes you, you. Otherwise, you'd be this, this mess of different systems all operating at cross-purposes and not working together. There needs to be something that makes all your systems work together. Because if you think about just the, the vast number of things going on in your body at any one given time, something needs to be coordinating all those. They need to be cooperating to some degree. Think about all the cells that you have in your body, all the different processes that all the different types of cells engage in. Even within the cells, there are you know multiple different processes that are going on at all times and they all need to be working together otherwise your body will fall apart and you'll die so there's some great mystery about how all of that works and again what what they're arguing is that well this is seems to be how it works you need a higher dimensional system like a higher order system that keeps all of the that takes all of the these input variables and then gives another um, the input from above, essentially, to coordinate them and keep them all in check, keep them all within the the dynamics of the system. And um, this is kind of so. This getting back to something you said in the show earlier, Elon. This is kind of a a way of of keeping together. Um, well, a way of thinking about like just the nervous system in general, because like you said, the nerve, the way the nervous system is structured, it's like a primitive part. And then there's a, a more advanced part that's built on top of the primitive part, and then another more advanced system built upon those two parts. So it's this hierarchical, multi-level system. Um, and um, just uh, like by way of reference, that that was one of the fundamental points of Dabrowski's theory. He um, he was inspired by um, a guy named Hewlings Jackson, who was a neurologist at like the end of the 1800s, beginning of the 1900s, and he basically described the nervous system in this way: it's a hierarchical system where the the higher um, the higher functions are more complex, and they're built on top of the lower systems, and they need the lower systems to to um, to operate. And when you have a disintegration or a, a loss of some degree of consciousness, it's the higher portions that go first. And then it's the lower ones are operating, and successively that's what happens. So that's actually what happens too in anesthesia. The higher functions go, and then you're basically operating just as a vegetable, you know, essentially. So a person in a coma, they're, they've lost all their higher functions, but all their lower functions are still operating. And um, so again, it's like, you, and that seems to be a necessary progression in order for consciousness to appear is that you need, first you need these lower systems. Then you need these systems built on top of those systems. You need all of this information being synthesized at every every higher level of organization till we get to the you know 
well, we're, we are the kind of like epitome of consciousness of which we have direct experience. To, to, so at the level of, of, the, uh, of the human, you have um, like the, the human level of consciousness, which is dependent on all of these lower systems acting, doing their own thing and acting in harmony to support that higher level structure. And so, th- again, you need something, something holding that all together. Mm-hmm. And going really further, like this would be like the, the, the grand philosophical implication of this mm-hmm. is that what's holding everything together, like the entire universe, because everything in the universe seems to be operating according to some sort of order. You know, like gravity seems to, to work the same here as opposed to on the other side of the planet or the other side of the, the solar system. Like there's something that determines, uh, something that holds the universe together to make it a universe. There is something that... Um, that, um, that there's something, what gives the universality of the things that happen in the universe? There needs to be some kind of binding principle overall to, 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 to make the universe a universe. And again, that goes back to, well, traditionally that has been the mind of God that holds everything together and that, uh, that um, you know, provides the stability and the, and the order for the universe to function. So that, that would be one of the, the kind of bigger implications of thinking about things along these lines. There were there were one or two others. One we kind of mentioned is the like the importance of time and memory, because um, one of the ways that they describe these kind of phase shifts that um, that they described as the slices of consciousness that get put together to make a you know a conscious like perception is that they described the the background gamma activity. Um, this kind of the this is like the background noise it's not actually noise it creates this like readiness this state of potential um they say that that uh that kind of gamma wave activity is generated by the inhibition and ex- excitatory 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 um neurons like in the brain so basically you know it's they're being excited and and inhibited and that like those shifts from back and forth you know on and off um, are what give that that uh, constant level of brain activity. And they compare that to the respiratory system. It's like breathing in, breathing out. It's this automatic process, and it's it's uh, 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 it's periodic, right? But, uh, like, you know, averaged out for the whole brain, it creates this kind of chaotic um, readiness state. I don't know. But what, st- what stuck out for me for that was their description of the, well, the comparison to the respiratory system because it reminded me of what uh, P.D. Uspensky wrote about um, like the breath being the foundation of time, I believe, and consciousness. So he, he basically said that like his, I don't know how accurate it, his description was, but there seemed to be a kernel of a, an idea that, that's true that comes out in this book, like that for a human, like the, the length of something, like the, uh, like the length of some degree of consciousness is like the, the time it takes you to breathe. But he'd said that the, the time that it takes an electron to breathe is like so much smaller than it takes for a human to breathe or, you know, any animal or any creature going down the, the scale of, you know, the ladder of creation, the ladder of beings down to the smallest, most simplest part that they each have, they each breathe in a, you know, a different, or their breaths are, 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 um, their breaths get shorter as you go down that ladder. And that seems to be, um, there's something in there, something interesting in there. And maybe one way, one other way to approach it is that um, the is the importance of time to this process because, as they point out at the, at the beginning of the book, the important thing about consciousness isn't its location because, like they say, their consciousness has no physical location. 
the important thing is its timing. The only way you're able to get a like to translate a higher dimensional structure into a, a into three dimensions is with a series of slices over time. That's why I mentioned the importance of memory. So time is an essential process. Like memory is an essential process in order to have the to to bring these higher dimensional forms into our reality, and it basically um, it gives it, there, there's something very important about time, and we don't really even understand what time is. Um, we have, there are a lot of assumptions about time, but the thing like along with the thing that Ospensky said about time was something that uh, Gurdjieff said about time in Beelzebub's Tales. I can't remember the exact use, words he used to describe it, but he basically s said something like it's the the supreme, unique subjective or something like that. His point being that time wasn't a thing. It wasn't like a, you know, a, a line that you progress through you know, in space through time. Like it wasn't this, that, that's like a, an abstract representation of time. Time is actually the experience of subjectivity itself. And this gets all of this gets back to process philosophy and basically Whitehead because he he basically was he made a very similar argument um, about this kind of breathing process like he said that reality was fundamentally bipolar that there was a um, like a, a physical and a mental pole and it, we were constantly cycling through them and he basically argued that when you get down to the, the lowest physical like the smallest physical process that would be like the most um, the most pristine example of well of a process it would be like the the atom of experience the atom of of reality essentially and that would be the cycling between objectivity and subjectivity and that every every degree of awareness on top of that is is made up of um, well imagine like a circle and then a bigger circle encompassing that smaller circle and etc going go, going and going and that the and also think about it in terms of, like I said, about this looping structure. So it's like you've got this constant looping of these little tiny processes, and then you've got a, a larger process that encompasses all of those little ones. That would be like, those are all the slices, and you put all those slices together and you get a higher dimensional picture. And then now you've got like a bunch of circles in a, in a bigger circle. Now take a bunch of those bigger circles and repeat the process, and you've got a higher dimensional like circle that's encompassing all of those little circles. So this would be like the experience of your electrons, and then your atoms, and then your molecules. So they're all experiencing their reality at their level. They're, they're breathing, their breaths. And as you get to a higher, a higher creature, then we have the mind. And the mind is the product of all of those processes going on beneath us so like in an instant of our awareness what they would call a slice of our awareness which is like what they said the 10 to 30 frames at 40 at 40 hertz all put together within all of those there are slices that make up those slices and then all within each of those slices are more tiny slices that make up those slices and so our our consciousness just like it's built upon the 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 multiple hierarchical systems of our nervous system are also built upon the multiple hierarchical, hierarchical, hierarchical systems of physical reality itself in that we are made of um, bodies and organs and organelles and cells and all the things going on in your cells and all the molecules and all the atoms that make up the molecules, etc., down to the smallest bit of reality. And it's this, this grand kind of um, symphony 
of all of these progressively larger or progressively smaller, depending on your perspective, um, processes that all get integrated and synthesized together to create the conscious experience of a moment that we string together. And so that just makes me, th when you think about how complex reality really is and how, mu how many things are being um, synthesized, integrated, and coordinated, um, that is like a staggering degree of complexity. And what the question that I have is that they did all this study, all these studies on like the brain waves, basically all of the different um, variables, um, all the different rules going into the, the the dynamical system of the brain waves. Well, what about all of the other systems that that you can't measure with brain waves, right? If if there were some way to measure all of the different processes from your atoms to your you know to to yourself as one unitary being. Like how many dimensions would you need to to describe the coordination of all those systems? I don't know if it's even the right question to ask. Um, if that's even possible, maybe I'm thinking in the wrong categories. I don't know. But there, but when just when you consider the complexity of things, it's like the maybe you need like an infinite number of dimensions in order to coordinate the entire universe, and maybe that ultimate attractor is the mind of God. Like that, the 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 the, the most complex attractor imaginable that is coordinating everything, every stream of information from every subatomic particle to every, every galaxy, and coordinating all of that you know, through time, through, well, through transformation, through the, the process of the universe, that, is, that, that just kind of blows my mind to think about that. <laughs> well, just, just bringing this down to, the, to, to uh, I guess, a, another level, I was thinking about um, learning things. And, and coming to understand uh, you know, certain truths or, or things as they exist um, in a nonlinear way. Uh, how many times have I, have I read something um, and, uh, and gotten another piece of information at, a, at another point in time and, and received another uh, bit of information at yet another point in time and um, almost spontaneously... Uh, these ideas congeal in the moment, and and my understanding of a given concept or idea, or my even myself, becomes this uh, this even greater thing. And it's almost it's almost as if the these bits, these little bits of of ideas uh, or or non physical material has has always kind of been there, and and come together in a way uh, that 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 can be quite surprising at some later point. Uh, do these ideas exist in, in one little portion of my brain and come together where they're stored in another portion of my brain? Um, I would say that my brain probably facilitates it to some degree or another uh, where, where memory is said to exist. But uh, does, that really, does that really explain it all? Um, or, or is there some non-physical location, uh, for lack of a better word, where these ideas uh, are said to exist and and they become bigger and more real, for lack of a better word, um, when you know when these thoughts and ideas become uh, fleshed out. No pun intended. Um, so that that's what I thought of when you were describing all of that, Harrison. I was thinking about uh, how these ideas, uh, insofar as they're they're close to being objective ones, uh, these these perceptions. Um, are said to exist as truths, not unlike 
you know, the, the mathematical forms that we were talking about earlier, uh, where, where they are just said to exist, and it's through our understanding, it's through our reason, um, with the, the brain, again, just being a, a, you know, our 3D counterpart. It, it doesn't mean it is the idea. It doesn't mean that it, it, it is the construction. It's just a facilitator. Um, but, uh, I, I guess that's what I'm, I'm trying to say. Maybe, maybe you have a, an idea, Corey. Well, I just, I, that got me thinking about the platonic forms and how, mm -hmm. you know, for so long, yes. nobody has known where the platonic forms would exist. But if you think of them as being these mathematical objects that can code for physical reality or that can, that seem to attract physicality to bind around it in such a way that it is, it's like this digitized um, matrix, I guess you could say, probably in the best way, the best uh, analogy that we have these days, mm -hmm. this digitized matrix that can, that can influence physical reality that precedes physical reality. And that all these, you know, all these different kinds of ideas and everything probably reside in a similar space because I know that, it's. It seems. Um, it. It just seems counterintuitive to imagine that everything is mathematics. Just the way that humans think, with language and with images, mm -hmm. imagery and with dreams. You know, you especially in you know the language of dreams uh, just seems to be such a. I mean, maybe in some way it's mathematical, but it's definitely a very real part of um, of consciousness, mm -hmm. and it's still so uh, vivid. So the imagery, the archetypal imagery is just it seems is uh its own reality you know be beyond mathematics perhaps maybe that's yeah. the wrong way to phrase it or on top of or on top of mathematics yeah. that are maybe higher maybe the mathematics is are the feet and the brain is and the imagery is the mind of god i'm not sure mm -hmm. or the hands mathematics is the hands of god the builder but anyhow harrison did you have something to say i just had one final thing to say something short another possible impl implication they point out that um, you can measure five plus dimensions uh, of human consciousness while multitasking. This also reminded me of something Gurdjieff did because he had two practices that he recommended people do. One was self-observation, the goal of which, the ultimate goal of which, would be would be to be would be to be able to have a constant, continuous awareness of your physical, emotional, and mental activities at any given moment at the same time. That's actually pretty hard to do. Um, usually we only focus on one thing at a time and then we forget. You know, we're focusing on our body and then we get distracted and we start doing something or we start thinking about something and we forget what our body's doing. But to, so maybe there's some, some advantage in practicing that. Practicing doing one or uh, more than one thing at a time and what better place to start than with yourself to gain a little bit of self-knowledge and help you through life. Um, but one of the other things that he recommended and that he did with his students were, were what he called the movements. So these were dances that were very complex and required an extraordinary degree of um, concentration because you would be moving independently, you would be independently moving all of your limbs at the same time. They would each be doing something different. And the way that the people that do these describe them is that, first of all, they're very hard. Um, you can't just do them, um, like even if you're like a prof professional dancer, it might be a bit easier for you, but it's not just like dancing. Um, because uh, it's, it's, I, I think it's akin to like 
drumming, but with each of your limbs, you're drumming a different beat. And yeah, I mean, you can do it with practice, but it's very hard. And the way that they described the the state of doing this is that when you finally, when they'd finally achieve being able to do these movements, they would have a different, they would basically enter a different state of consciousness. And that it just reminded me of that because um, perhaps what they're actually doing, you know, by forcing themselves to be multitasking in this way, um, doing these very different tasks at the same time and holding them all in mind at the same time, they are their consciousness is operating on a higher dimensional level. They're basically forcing it to happen by engaging in these practices. So who knows? Maybe there might be some um, some advantage to engaging in like uh, exercises like this. I'd say you know without knowing what the what the movements are or you know not having a teacher the one that you can that we can all start with um, or continue with is self-observation to be trying to be constantly aware of ourselves and everything going on within us at the same time and not only might that allow our consciousness to to operate on a higher level you know with a higher degree of complexity but um, it might do a whole lot a whole bunch of other things for us too as we kind of hinted at in the insight show you know self-awareness goes a long way um, to acting as a real human being, and maybe that's another point of of this book, uh, which is that if if you know we've if we're made up of all of these um, different processes, uh, these these ways of functioning, uh, from primitive to uh, more advanced to really highly complex, that that the way to um, an even higher level of awareness, if, if such can be said to exist, and, and I think we've, we've made a fair argument that it probably does exist, is to um, you know, start out with uh, an even better kind of awareness of ourselves physically, emotionally, psychologically, and, um, but also to be, uh, to be considering these concepts of, of you know what exists on, on an even higher level uh, of awareness of of being. Um, maybe it's through uh, the the thinking of of these um, ideas, these structures, these uh, these ways that reality may exist that um, that th- that we can be uh, on the road to building this next kind of um, next level uh, to our being. Well, that does it for today folks i hope that you uh, enjoyed the conversation as much as we enjoyed having it go ahead and tune in next time when we discuss some of the more mysterious and majestic things about the cosmos that we all live in until then everybody take care have happy holidays rest up and just so everyone knows we will be off the air for the next two weeks so we'll see you next year be safe and take care thanks for listening Bye bye